Let's open the word of prayer. Father, we just ask that as we open your word, you would open our hearts, that it would penetrate our hearts, we would submit to it, allow it to change us, transform us into the image of Christ. Father, we pray that, uh, God, I just pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, your word would be clear, and I would echo it. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name as we gather. Amen. I know our family is gearing up for Thanksgiving. I'm sure your families are getting ready. I know tonight we have our big semi-potluck, exciting times. And I thought I'd spend a few minutes this morning, or in fact my whole time, hopefully it's probably, I'll be honest, it's going to be more than a few minutes. We're going to spend the time today just reflecting on Thanksgiving, biblically. What does that mean? What does it look like? And there are a lot of great texts in the Bible on Thanksgiving. Rick read one of them this morning that can set us uh, on a good path, what it means to understand Thanksgiving. But this morning I'm going to actually look at the opposite end of the spectrum. There are a few examples of really bad Thanksgiving, some false Thanksgiving in Scripture. And I think we can learn some things from those too about what, uh, how we should view uh, giving thanks to God. So turn with me to Luke 18, and we're going to begin there, because I'm not Rick, and we're not going through a book, an entire book right now. I'm going to jump around a little bit, more than we're used to, so you'll have your fingers ready a bit. But we'll start at Luke 18. If in our hearts Thanksgiving isn't deeply rooted in God in his character, in his works, in his goodness, in his mercy, in his grace to us, if our thanksgiving isn't rooted in God, it's really just boasting in ourselves. And hear me on this. I'm not just talking to godless church people. In the text we're going to read today, he's actually talking to people who said they were the people of God, who who had pride in the fact that they followed the word of God so closely. And so the text makes it very clear. It's not for the godless people that this warning is, but for the very people of God. So we're going to begin in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 18. And Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted of themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Simple. Two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector, in the temple to pray. But to really understand the impact and, and the power of this story, I think we have to put ourselves in the, in the shoes of the first century audience a little bit. And Jesus tells us who the audience is. He gives us some help. It's people who trusted in their own righteousness and treated others with contempt. And the audience knew these characters well. The audience knew who the Pharisees were. And the Pharisees in our day and age get a bad reputation. And in fact, the New Testament gives them a bad reputation, and rightfully so. But they're actually seen by many as the pillars of the community, the, the, the people who held the traditions. While others were, were giving in power to the Romans or were being seduced by the culture or by political power or by other things, it was the Pharisees who held on to the traditional values and were passionate about the kingdom of Israel and restoring the kingdom of Israel. And the tax collector, on the other hand, was, well, they were seen as a traitor. They sold out to Rome. They sold out all that they had, even their faith in God, to make some money. And so the audience knew how this scenario should play out. They knew the story that Jesus was setting them up for. So let's continue reading in verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. God, I I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and and I give tithe of all that I get. 
Now, I'm sure that the audience was cheering the Pharisee's virtue. He hadn't compromised. Uh, he hadn't compromised his faith or his life, what it meant to him. Uh, they, they were thankful for his contributions to the, to the synagogue, thankful for his contributions to the community. And you know what? The audience knew this was a good man, a moral man, upstanding in his community, and they knew the, the reward that he would get. And they were looking forward to seeing how, in Jesus' teaching, he would get a reward for his faithfulness. But of course, despite what the audience is thinking, you and I are probably familiar with this story, or if not, you can probably see how it's getting set up here. We, we can see through what Jesus uh, is doing here. He's going to turn the story upside down. He sees right through the false thankfulness of the Pharisee. You know, the, the Pharisee cloaks his language in thanksgiving, but isn't it just really boasting about himself? Isn't it just really, he, you know, he starts and he says, God, I'm so thankful that, that I, 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 that I made good choices in my life, that I've done the right thing, that I have the moral willpower. I'm thankful that, that I am not like this sinful tax collector. Now, don't get me wrong. Nobody is uh, celebrating or cheering, you know, the, the sin and, and, and the characters that he's uh, talking about here being an extortioner, being unjust, being an adulterer. No one's celebrating that kind of immorality. What's the Pharisee really doing here, though? He's celebrating his own righteousness, his own work, all under the false pretense of thanksgiving. His thankfulness was false because it flowed from a heart of pride, of self-righteous pride. Now, for me, as I think about this, I think about this coming week, and you know, woe to me, woe to us, if our thanksgiving flows from this self-righteous pride. Now, we should be thankful for our families, but not because I'm such a great parent and I've raised my kids in such a perfect way and I've worked so hard to provide for them, but because God is the giver of all good gifts, and I should thank Him for His grace in my family. I should be thankful for my warm home and my abundant food, but not because of all my hard work in it, but because God is such a great provider. Even at the expense of his own son on the cross, he has provided everything we need. I should be thankful for all the blessings in my life, but we should be sure to boast in God, in his character, in his faithfulness, in his promises, and his grace and mercy in our lives, not in ourselves. But let's, uh, let's continue reading. Verses 13 and 14. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. For me, that's such a powerful, this parable is such a powerful picture of the gospel. You have the Pharisee who trusted in his own righteousness, who trusted in what he could do to earn his way uh, to pleasing God. He wanted to prove himself righteous. And it seems to me that he began then to trust in his own righteousness. But then we have the other example of the tax collector. And the tax collector knew that he had no righteousness within himself. He, he, 
he, he depended on what, you know, what the reformers called an alien righteousness. Not, not talking about Martians and those kind of aliens, but something outside of ourselves. Something that we can't produce or promote in our own hearts. Something that we can't cultivate in our own hearts, no matter how hard we try. The Bible's clear what's in our hearts. But what he needed was the very righteousness that only God could provide for him. And, and the very righteousness that Scripture spells out for us all over, that it's the very righteousness of Christ. His perfect life attributed, given to us through faith. It was the tax collector, the sinful, traitor, broken tax collector, not the righteous and pious Pharisee that went home justified, made right and righteous before God. And Jesus is foreshadowing for us here what is so clear in his teaching and through the rest of Scripture It's by God's rich mercy and lavish grace that he grants us an alien righteousness. He grants us a righteousness that we cannot produce or cultivate within our own hearts. A righteousness that comes from the outside. The very righteousness of Christ. It's by his grace and mercy that he extends that grace to sinners like this tax collector. To sinners like me. To sinners like you. Through faith that we might be justified, counted righteous before God. As Paul says in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for, my grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's, the very, it's a gift of God, not, not a result of works, so that no one might boast. And you guys know I've spent the last five years getting the chance to work with Muslims and Muslim background believers, uh, people that grew up in a Muslim family but have come to Christ and I've just been overwhelmed by seeing, having the opportunity to see such profound thankfulness in their lives. I've been taught so much by them about thankfulness. I think of some of my friends um, who lived in those times and who found themselves, because of their faith, being beaten, being scorned, being shamed, and yet... Cons- Literally counted it, they were thankful that they had the opportunity to suffer those things for Christ. People who have lost, literally rejected by their families, but were so moved and so thankful for the faithfulness of God in His church, and so thankful for the, for the church because of that. You know, one of the things that I'm reminded of. is that this parable unpacks for us the very first principle, the the very most basic principle about thankfulness in the Bible. True thanksgiving is deeply rooted in a profound humility, knowing that what we have is not of ourselves, is not from ourselves, but from God. And that might be fair enough, but... You know, the next question that at least I ask as I, as I look through this is, well, where does that humility come from? How do we cultivate? How do we grow? How do we mature into that humility? The Bible is actually kind of clear on this. Biblical humility begins and ends with a right view of God. Somehow, setting our eyes, gazing at the greatness, at the immensity, at the power, at the creativity at the sovereignty, at the glory and grace of God, sets our priorities straight. Reflecting on His immeasurable mercy to us. 
on his lavish grace, on his unending love, helps us to find our true and honest place in the world. As we gaze at the excellencies, as Scripture unpacks the multitude of excellencies of Jesus, it says we're transformed into his image. It humbles us. It moves us to praise. And it moves us to true thanksgiving. True thanksgiving is rooted in a deep humility, and humility begins and ends with a right view of God. Now, a right view of God changes our perspective. It changes the way we see things. If we have a view of God as some cosmic tyrant, we're going to live in fear and anger or maybe even in rebellion. If we see God as a, a pushover Santa Claus, we're going to manipulate him for his gifts or we're going to only see him as a gift giver and take advantage of his kindness. If we see God as some kind of grandfatherly figure, we might be thankful for him, but we're going to probably also see him as a little bit irrelevant. You know, like I said, we got a chance to see lives changed by the gospel in Greece and, and, and refugees whose lives were turned upside down. And that changed their perspective. When they, had, when they had the perspective of God as revealed through Jesus Christ, it changed everything for them. As I mentioned, they were thankful for the opportunities that they had to stand up for his name, even if it cost them everything. They were thankful for their family in the church, even if they lost their earthly family. They had nothing, homeless, and yet thankful more than I've ever seen just to open up the Word of God, to study together, to have uh, that perspective in their lives changed, changed everything for them. When we see the God as Scripture proclaims Him, full of glory, full of grace, full of power, full of beauty, it should drive us to humility and to thanksgiving. And so there are a lot of Scriptures I could point you to here. A lot of scriptures that uh, unpack this idea for you. But I immediately think of Job. And you remember the book of Job. Job loses everything. God allows these disasters in his life. And for about 37, 37 chapters, Job asks, why? Why did you allow this, God? Why was Job being tested? Why, why, why? And they're full of questions for Job. And his friends are full of questions and especially for his friends that are very presumptuous, very contemptuous about God and about who Job and Job and questioning his character. And after 37 chapters, God finally shows up. And you'll notice something, though. God doesn't answer their questions. He simply puts their questions in context. He says, I am God. I am in control. God, not us, he has the answers. He doesn't give the answers to Job, but he just makes it clear. I'm the one with the answers. Let me just read for you as I, as I think about some of these things. He, he really takes Job to task here. He gives him a, I don't know, I enjoy this part. But in 38 we read, And then the Lord answered Job after 37 questions of him and his friends questioning God's character and questioning Job's character. It says, God answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens? Counsel by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, Job, or who stretched this line out upon it? 
We continue in verse 12 and he says, Job, have you commanded the morning since your day began or caused the dawn to know its place? Skipping to 22, he says, have you entered the storehouse of snow or, or seen the storehouses of hail that I have? He asks Job, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters might come down and cover you? He continues on for three chapters, just unpacking all the things that he has done in creation, all of his power, his sovereignty, his knowledge. And says, Job, where were you during all these things? What are the answers that you can give? And again, in 40, he tells him, Job, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you ever put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that I that you might be right? That convicts me. Sometimes I want, to conv- I want to condemn God so that I could be right. But here he calls Job out. Have you an arm like God? Do you have the power of God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? True thanksgiving is rooted in a deep humility. And the deep humility is, begins and ends with a right view of who God is. And now Job's example for us is a, is a bit of a strong one. And there are other examples, but sometimes we need that strong example of God standing up and saying, no, you know, what? I, you are the creation. I am the creator. I am the sovereign. I am the one that has the answers. God's enormity and his sovereignty, his glory and his majesty drive our humility. And sometimes we need to be humbled like Job was. But sometimes we need to be reminded that God, the God of the Bible, loves us with an unending Forever love. Read with me in uh, Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? Is it God, is, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Then who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. True thanksgiving is rooted in a deep, Humility. And biblical humility begins and ends with a right view of who God is. And God's deep and abiding, abiding love, God's inseparable love for us in Christ Jesus, drives us to humility. And maybe I'm beating a dead horse here, but Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. <laughs> Another picture of who God truly is, a right view of God. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There's a right view of who we are 
in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you also, you all once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the work of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, which we should walk in them. True thanksgiving is rooted in humility. And humility begins and ends with a right view of God. And God's rich mercy, His lavish grace, the immeasurable riches of His grace, is what the text just said, immeasurable riches of His grace, drive us to humility. You know, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple gives us a pretty stark and powerful picture of what false humility looks like. A humility that flows from pride, from self-righteous heart, from a self-righteous heart. And in this parable, Jesus makes it pretty obvious what's in the heart of the Pharisee. And for us, it's really easy to spot in the heart of the Pharisee. But it, at least in my experience, it's a lot harder to spot in our own hearts. And so this week, I'd ask that you spend some time in reflection. As we move towards Thanksgiving, and hopefully we always have a heart of Thanksgiving, but as we move, move towards the specific time of Thanksgiving, let's reflect in our hearts and spend some time in reflection, spend some time in repentance. Because in my experience, I'm convinced that that kind of pharisaical attitude, that, that pride, that self-righteousness, not if we ever have it, but it's when and where it is in our lives. When am I given an opportunity for it to, to grow in my life? Where am I seeing it right now? How is it affecting the way I share God's mercy and riches to others? How is it affecting the way I view others as we see in the life of that, of that Pharisee in the parable? It completely affected the way he saw others. Instead of seeing them as people in need of God's mercy, love, and grace, he looked down on them. So let's spend a time of reflection this week. And even more... My prayer for you this week is that we would spend some time soaking in the biblical picture of God. Spend some time in His Word and let us be corrected. Let our hearts be corrected by what His Word says about who He is. And maybe it's a time in your life where you need that Job picture where God just kind of puts His hand down and says, I'm God. I'm the sovereign one. Maybe it's that time in your life where you need that Romans picture and you need to be reminded that God loves us in Christ Jesus with an unending love or maybe you need to be reminded of god's saving work on the cross like we read about in ephesians 2 that he has rich and lavish grace that he is waiting to pour out onto us the scripture is so full of hymns and treatises and prayers and poems and just all kinds of rich rich descriptions of who god is and when we root our hearts and anchor our hearts deeply in that vision we're moved to humility. 
which is the first step the Bible teaches towards true thanksgiving. Let me pray. Father, we, we just thank you that you are a huge, mighty, powerful God. That you are the sovereign one who holds time and nations and life in your hands. God, we don't always have all the answers. And sometimes, like Job we and his friends, we think we do. But God, we know that you are the source of all good gifts in our lives. You are the source of all good in our lives. You are the source of any good that we have in our lives. You are the source of our salvation. And Father, we thank you for that now. And we pray that, that you would continue to work in our lives this week, driving us towards humility that comes from truly understanding who you are. And God, we just pray that, that the fruit of that humility would be thanksgiving this week. And we can truly embrace our family, the lives you've given us, the opportunities that you've given us the grace that you've poured out on us, and know that those are gifts from you. We thank you for Jesus, the greatest gift that you've ever given us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.